Hi, welcome to the brief for The Legend of the Monk and the Merchant by Terry Felber. Brief one, we're looking at the main point of the book. So what this book is really about is that there's no separation between the monk and the merchant. Both are actually ministers for God. And a lot of this comes from the verse in Revelations 1 and 6, where John says, God has made us kings and priests. The point is that Jesus has made us kings and priests. And when you really look at the grammar in it, it's he continues to make us kings and priests. Um, It's in the present perfect tense. And so we have an area over which we have dominion, but we are to, to advance the kingdom of God, no matter what it is that we do. And both are holy and sacred, as St. Augustine said. We have an obligation to make a living as believers. We have an obligation to provide for the priest only uh, through our giving. We have an obligation to do ministry in whatever arena it is that we are placed. And in fact, that's the reason that we're placed in so many different arenas, is to advance the kingdom in whatever sphere God has placed us in. Brief two, biblical heroes who weren't priests. So when you take a look at the Old Testament, you'll find that virtually all the major characters, none of them were were priests, right? In the sense that we think of that. Uh, If you think about it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all uh, ranchers and business folks. Joseph similarly was a, a businessman and an administrator in whatever role he found himself in, whether it was running the prison or running the nation of Egypt. Daniel was an administrator in Babylon, a high government leader. Joshua and Caleb were generals in the army of the Lord. David was a a shepherd, a general, and a king. Nehemiah was a governmental leader, the wine steward, which was more like a CFO. The Levites were the priestly tribe, and all the rest accessed God through him. But we know that the veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross and that we have entrance to the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus now. And so we know that the Holy Spirit has made all believers uh, priests. And, and it was written like this by John. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then in 1 Peter 2 and 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. So every believer is a priest. And so now we are to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples, which said in Matthew 28, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And there is a sacredness to work, you know, combining the spirit and the marketplace uh, together. In fact, you you can do missionary work in other countries through the marketplace uh, that you couldn't do through the conventional ministry. I'll give you just an example. A lot of the Muslim countries, for example, it's prohibited 
to preach the gospel or to try to convert folks. And so one way that you might be able to get in there would be to start a business, say a store. And when folks come in to buy food, you give them food when they need it. And when they ask you why, then you tell them that you serve Jesus. So you may get opportunities to enter into these places that a conventional minister could not. Now, the other thing about the Holy Spirit with respect to the sacredness of all work is that he teaches us all things. And so John said it like this, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And I think all things includes business and the marketplace. Brief three, the Great Commission, drill down. Go, and the word that uses poriomai, and this word means to depart. And so what's being said there is, is to depart, to leave your church uh, in the Great Commission. And so in Matthew 22, we're told to go into the highways and as many as we find to invite them to the wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the words that's used in the Great Commission when it says nation, it's actually the word ethnos, which means people groups. It's a word from which we get ethnicity from. It's our job to plant, but it's the Holy Spirit that actually grows folks. So we go into various spheres. Some people have divided it in this way. They call them culture molders. The government, the media, the arts, education, industry, and the marketplace. All different spheres, but all areas that God places us in. And for what purpose? To fulfill the Great Commission. No matter where you are, there's someone that you can reach based on where you're uniquely placed. Brief four, money, good or evil. The Greek thought that the spiritual and material were two separate spheres. And so they thought that the spiritual was noble and that the material was evil, you know, and banal, banal, I guess. Uh, they, they thought clearly the spiritual was much superior. And they emphasized the one, they thought that you needed to de-emphasize the other. And so what you saw was you saw things like monks who went and took vows of poverty to emphasize the spiritual. And the question in the Bible really isn't, do you have money? It is, does money have you? So the question is, where is your treasure? Is it in heaven? Or are you relying on it and making an idol of it? Money in and of itself has no morals one way or the other. It's a tool to be used as anything else can be used. Just as a gun can be used for defense or to hunt, it can also be used to murder. It's a tool. Money is another tool. Now, the word tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. So we can make money into an idol and that we dare not do because, you know, we are commanded to serve God and him only. A man cannot serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, as Jesus said in Matthew 6. And he also said in Matthew 6, Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so he was saying, Seek God first. God must be first. He must be above money, above things, above all else. Because whatever is first, that is your God. Now, there were many wealthy followers um, with Jesus Zacchaeus was one. He was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. Was also would have been wealthy. 
Uh, Nicodemus was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea. Lydia, the, the merchant, uh, was the first convert in Europe. Uh, she, she should have been pretty wealthy as well. Some principles to keep in mind about money. Matthew 25, first, money is, it's not ours. It's God's. We're just stewards of it. Second principle to keep in mind is, it's our job to serve with whatever God puts in our hands. Martin Luther King Jr. said it like this, anyone can be great because anyone can serve. A third principle is, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. So focus on the eternal. When you're given money as a tool, apply it to kingdom purposes. Four, always be dependent on God. Remember, when you get saved, the key verse is Romans 10 and 9, and you must confess Jesus as Lord. And if he's the Lord, then that means you're the servant. And that means you're dependent on him. And that is indeed the case. We're depending on God, and we never want to rely on something else like money. The fifth principle is, we are seeking to do God's will and not our own, including with the resources that he provides. And so we want to do the good, acceptable and perfect will of God in everything, including how we spend and how we give. And you can advance the kingdom a lot by giving at the right time. Remember that Jesus, when he ministered to the people, many times the first thing that he would do is he would meet their physical or material needs and then he would give them the spiritual. Remember when he fed the five thousand? Um, remember when he fed the 4,000 and actually it's more like probably the 20,000 and the 16,000 because the 5,000 was the men only and the 4,000 was the men only, but he met their physical needs and then he met their spiritual needs. And so it should be with us meeting their material needs with the resources that God provides us can help us to advance the kingdom and bring people to know Christ. Brief five key misconceptions that hold back the advance of God's kingdom. The first is this, that others need to give financial support to your ministry activities. Remember that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 10. Um, in 1 Timothy 5 and 8, you know, between those two, we're told that if you don't work, you don't eat, and you're commanded to provide for your own household in 1 Timothy. And so there is a commandment basically to work if you're able. Laziness and sloth are condemned as deadly sins, for example, in Proverbs. And a guy by the John, name of John Wesley, who was very famous as one of the starters of the Methodist church, said this. He basically said, paraphrasing, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And that's basically prosperity with a purpose. So in other words, God gives you stuff for you to apply to his kingdom purposes. He, he gives you, shall we say, he puts it in your hands and gives you stewardship over it for his purposes. Proverbs 13 and 22 says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So this is certainly a spiritual inheritance, but it's also could be a financial inheritance as well. And certainly that's something we should strive to do. We should strive to be good stewards of our resources so that we can leave a base for our children to grow from both spiritually and financially. Brief six, lessons from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and from Dave Ramsey. So in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, there's a number of principles that are put in there, but here's a few key ones. The first thing is this, there's a big contrast that the author makes between the rich dad 
and the poor dad, right? So he says that the rich dad talks business at the dinner table. The poor dad does not. The rich dad managed his financial risk and he took prudent risk. Whereas the poor dad, he never took risk. He just, you know, saved as opposed to investing. The third was the rich dad believed in self-reliance, basically entrepreneurial ventures, had an investment mindset. But the poor dad uh, believed that you should have a job or work for the government um, or, get a, or have the government provide for you. Uh, a fourth lesson, key point would be the rich dad would have you teach you how to write business plans so that you could create jobs. And the poor dad would teach you how to write a resume so that you could get a job. Um, and so it's a contrasting mindset. Um, Dave Ramsey gives a few things that are important, especially with respect to passing it on generationally, the thinking about, about money. So he tells you to teach your kids about money before they they even go to school. So in, at preschool ages, pay your kids for chores and get your kids out working. So they learn, you know, they sell something, newspapers or they cut yards or, or they set up a lemonade stand, but let them get used to the idea of working as a way to generate income and let them learn how to run an old business by doing it. And then also he tells you to get mentors that they, because they can help you to know what it is that you're called to do. Are you called to be perhaps just a minister or are you called to be in the marketplace ministry? Mentors can help you figure that out. Brief seven. Another key principle is to live a simple lifestyle and one way to put it would be to live below your means because that's the way that you get the resources to be able to give, to be able to save, to be able to, to leave that inheritance for those who come after you. Um, but innovations are the way that you may have a chance to actually, to actually build wealth, especially disruptive innovations. And so in the, in the word, it tells us about living a simple lifestyle. First uh, Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, it says to make it your goal to live a quiet life minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Um, now, there's disruptive innovations that often are the key to building wealth. If you look at Uber or Airbnb, you see that what they did was they found a way to have other people put their assets to work to build wealth for them, the owners of the firm, right? Uh, and it was a much more capital-efficient model that generated tremendous wealth, as you can see for them from the stock market values of both of those companies, Uber and Airbnb. So disruptive innovation is a way to build wealth, and God is a giver of innovative ideas, in many cases, as a means to fulfill his purpose. Brief eight, hard work, time, and God. Ramsey has this theory called momentum theory that suggests you need hard work, time, and God in order to be able to create wealth create resources that God gives you, well, be a good steward of the resources that God provides in your hands. And so probably the best example I can think of this in the word is, is Jacob. You may remember how Jacob had to work for essentially 20 years um, in order to work, get the, the wealth of resources of uh, a flock of substantial size uh, while working for his uncle, Naboth. And you may remember that it was hard work in the, the heat and the cold and that Nabin continually tried to cheat him, but that, you know, he certainly had 
to work hard given those conditions. He had time, 21 years. And then in addition to that, most importantly, God was in the picture because Nabin was always trying to cheat him. And what the Lord would do is he would, whatever rule change that Nabin would make in terms of which parts of the flock would be, would be Jacob's, God would make sure that those would be the strong ones, the ones that would procreate, the strong goats and rams that would procreate uh, and produce strong offspring uh, on behalf of Jacob. So there you see all three elements of the formula at work. And you need the same uh, elements that work for you. But remember, God has a, a perfect wheel and it's, it's certain places that he wants. He wants some to be poor. He wants some to be middle class. He wants some to be wealthy as the world defines it. Why? Because he wants people to be able to save people everywhere in every strata and every sphere. But there's, there's nothing wrong with combining all three of these elements, no matter where God places you. In fact, you need to. Brief nine, be meek before God, but bold before men. If you look at Moses and his life, you'll see that he was called the humblest man on earth. But when God sent him out to deal with people, for example, when he went out to deal with Pharaoh through the 10 plagues, you saw that he was bold in his confrontations of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the earth at that time. He was the ruler of the greatest empire on earth. But Moses had no fear to confront him and to, to state his demands, what he needed, and what the consequences would be for Pharaoh if Pharaoh didn't obey this. Now, the reason for his boldness was because he knew he had the backing of God. He knew that he was in God's perfect will. Similarly, we can be bold in terms of executing God's perfect will. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is you see that it makes people bold. You see that Peter asked for, and the other apostles, the spirit of boldness after they were released from gold, from jail to proclaim uh, God's goodness, to show off his miracles, to show off God. And so the thing here is whatever it is that God wants you to do, once he shows you what it is, then you can be bold in it as far as the way that you take it to men. But of course, you need to be humble before God. And for example, even Jesus, you see, while he was very meek and humble in some ways, when it came to defending and doing the will of God, and he was bold. You saw that in the temple, he overturned the tables of the money changers. You saw that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, when they accosted him and they accused him of uh, breaking the commandments of God, Jesus turned it around and said, hey, look, these are the traditions of men that you're trying to put on the people. You are the ones breaking the commandments of God. So he never had fear in terms of dealing with um, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in fact, the word tells us God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power, love and of a sound mind. And so this is either yet another reason that we should be bold in our dealings with men. Brief 10, borrowing and lending. Another principle you should think about is living debt free and below your means. In Romans 13 and 8, we see that it says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And so the key point here is to live below your means. Second key point is to save off the top and automatically. If you do that, you'll be surprised at how easy you make it. 
The third thing is that loaning money destroys relationships. So you should give rather than lending. Some of the verses that speak to the dangers of lending, one would be Proverbs 11 and 15, where we see Solomon saying, he who puts up security for another will surely suffer. Brief 11, mentorship and partnering. In Proverbs 11 and 14, we read that basically in the multitude of counselors, there one if not wisdom. And so basically what is being said there by Solomon is that having a lot of people and a lot of different viewpoints helps you to make wise decisions. And so having people around you who uh, can help you is a great thing to do, a great principle to keep in mind. Similarly, Proverbs 12 and 20 says that he who walks with wise men will be wise. So you should be careful in terms of your selection of these folks that you do walk with. But the word also tells us iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. So the point is that working with others who are wise, listening to them, walking with them can be a a great help to you in terms of you building up the resources that God wants you to have for your journey. Brief 12, a life of giving is a life worth living. So God has a giving heart. We know that he gave us life, you know, and he gives us all things, right? And so we are to be like Jesus, to have giving hearts. And in fact, Jesus gave it all, right? And we are called to do that. You know, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me saying that we need to sacrifice this life and allow Jesus to live his life through us so that we're only doing his will. And that would be a giving heart amongst other things. And one of the things that James said was that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt us. So being givers to those in need, orphans, widows. Um, Psalms 82 and 3 tells us to vindicate the weak and the fatherless. So, and do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. What's it telling us? To be givers. You know, when we're told, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. And we're told to cast our bread upon the waters and will return to us. But being givers is one of the key ways to bring people to Christ. Um, it's one of the key ways to do the Great Commission that every believer is commanded to do. Now, a guy by the name of Jim Elliott, who went to reach an unreached people group called the Akas, um, made this quote that you may have heard. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what happened to him was he gave his life up trying to reach the Akas. And it's ironic because the Akas actually uh, were actually ministered to by the wives. When these men gave their lives, the wives were able to minister to them because the Akka said they saw the angels take these guys' spirits up after they killed them. And uh, it opened them up to, to being ministered to. But the point is that we are to be givers as God is a giver. And has he not given us all things, including life? And so what can we do Accept, give back to him. Brief 13, key takeaways. And so what are some of the key takeaways in this book, The Legend 
of the monk and the merchant? Well, the first one I would say is that God calls some to marketplace ministry and some to normal ministry. Both are sacred. Make the most of wherever it is that he places you and whatever your call is on your life. Both are for God's purposes. Second one, I would say, is to be meek before God, but bold before man. Remember, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but power, love, and of a sound mind. The third takeaway, I would say, is that you are commanded to fulfill the Great Commission no matter where you are placed. Pray about it and do it. And remember that you are a king and a priest. God has made us kings and priests, as was written by John in Revelation. And that means that you have an area of dominion, an area of that's under your sphere, may well be the marketplace, but that you are also to be a priest powered by the Holy Spirit. The fourth point, be a good steward of the resources God provides you. Pray about the strategies you are to use if you're in the marketplace ministry. Pray for guidance on how to manage your resources and use those resources and put them to work. Pray about what it is that God wants you to do and how to to grow and be a good steward of the resources that he's given you. And then the fifth point would be for a person that is in marketplace ministry, remember that you have opportunities a conventional ministry may not have. So, for example, you can go into countries in many cases that a conventional ministry cannot. For example, Muslim countries that would prohibit preaching the gospel they would very well allow you to start a store or some such um, venture, which you could use to meet people's physical needs. And having met that, use that as an opportunity to meet their spiritual needs. Hi, thank you for listening to this brief. We have plenty more at christianbrief.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F.com. May the Lord bless you and keep you and hope you check out some of the other briefs at ChristianBrief.com.